Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scriptures from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When he saw the crowds, he ascended the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing are the humble, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful, because they'll be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, because they'll be called the children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you when people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice. Be glad because your reward in heaven is great. In this same way, they slandered the prophets who came before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, well, good morning. Over the last year, I have been uh, developing a wonderful friendship with a a man from India that I randomly met at a Starbucks near my house. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but it's been great. We get together regularly, and we have the most thought-provoking and really enjoyable conversations about everything from genetics, which is his field, to religion, to politics, to parenting, to the best Indian restaurants, to soccer, and to artificial intelligence, language. These are the kind of things we talk about. No topic is out of bounds, and every conversation is really kind and mutually respectful and just really enjoyable. And one of the most fascinating things about this friendship is the differences between my Christian faith and his pretty nominal Hinduism are regularly interwoven into everything we talk about. I mean, it's not, these things aren't, we don't avoid those conversations at all. And as a result, I often walk away from our conversations like understanding Christianity better because it's in this like really sharp contrast of, of its difference between Hinduism in a very respectful and helpful way. And every so often, my friend asks a profound question that almost takes my breath away. And this happened just two weeks ago this, uh, today. Like it was an early Sunday morning. He and I were sitting together at the same Starbucks and talking. And I was sharing some, um, something frustrating in my life with him. And with all sincerity and respect, he, he stopped me and he said, you know, as a Christian, how do you, how do you be happy? How do you be happy? That is, how do you find peace and true happiness in the midst of difficulties and fears that we all experience in life. What a powerful question that was. And it's a good one to ask yourself as well, how do you find happiness or peace? I don't mean just on the surface, not just escape, but really. Like, what is it, what would you answer to that question? And you see, it turns out that 
very powerful and personal question that my friend asked me is a very old question. In fact, I would say, I'd suggest to you that it is the single most universal human question. It's the most important question we've ever asked, and it's the universal one. How do you find true happiness, true life, shalom, if you want to call it peace, flourishing in the midst of a world that inevitably involves loss and suffering and death and pain and disappointments, as well as joys and pleasures, but ones that never last? That is the great question that every religion, every philosophy, and every marketing campaign is really seeking to answer How do you be truly happy? Whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Confucianism, or whether it's Aristotelianism or Platonism, Stoicism, or whether it's Lexus, CrossFit, Essential Oils, or Edward Jones, it doesn't matter. Everyone you see is promising true happiness and peace by following in their way. And the reason everybody's promising that is because that's what every human longs for. That's how we're made. That that longing for us in it is not bad. It's how we're made. And because we know the lack of it in this world, we're aware that that question is looming over us. So my Indian friend and I, we compared notes on how I would answer that as a Christian and how Hinduism would answer it. The answers are very, very different. But what tied us together, what ties us together, is that he and I and all of us are real humans living real lives that include a lot of beauty, but also a lot of brokenness. And we have in us this DNA made by God that makes us long to figure out what it means to find true life. We know we lack it. But, wait a minute, I realize what may be going on in some of your minds. This talk about happiness and human flourishing may sound a little weird to some of us, maybe for some of us here, it may sound like the opposite of Christianity. After all, isn't Jesus about self-denial and self-sacrifice, not about happiness? Maybe to say Christianity, like every religion and philosophy is promising happiness, maybe that sounds to you like I'm, I'm doing the kind of television Christianity, health and wealth gospel sort of thing, or promising in a kind of megachurch Rolls Royce ridicularity of that you can get your best life with this sort of being super positive and rich with a big plastic smile. Is that what I'm talking about? I think most of us would be rightly hesitant to say that's what Christianity is or what happiness or flourishing is. It just doesn't seem to go with the Bible's teachings or really what we experience in life. So am I saying that Jesus and the Bible is actually teaching about true happiness and flourishing? Absolutely, yes. That is what I'm saying, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament care about this universal human question and is offering its own powerful answer to that. Now, the reason I want to start this way by talking about those, that big issue is because we are preaching, if you're new here, just to know, if you've been here, you know this, we're, we're preaching and teaching through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's, it's a joy, it's amazing. And we are entering today a new phase in Matthew's story about Jesus. <clears throat> this new stage is gonna 
take us through the rest of May, and it's chapters Matthew five, uh, Matthew chapters five to seven, and it's really one section together that has been the single most influential part of the Bible throughout all of church, the church's history. Last 2,000 years, this portion of the Bible is the most influential on people's understanding of what Christianity is and who Jesus is and, and how to live, etc. And we call this section the Sermon on the Mount. And there's some nice, cool artwork someone did on the cover there for us, which is nice. And in this section, the Sermon on the Mount is, is going to re- just be a total joy for us over the next several weeks to work through. And to just to introduce this Sermon on the Mount and see how this all works together, I just want to say three quick introductory things about the sermon, just to kind of orient us to what's going to happen for the next several weeks. First thing to say about the Sermon on the Mount, we'll put them on the screen here for you so you can see them. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, is really just the first of five blocks of teaching that Matthew's going to give us from Jesus that are designed to train people to be disciples of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is these three chapters that, that it's like it's offline from the story. Most of Matthew is a story, right? But then there are these five sections, this is the first of them, that are kind of offline from that, that give like a really concentrated set of Jesus' teachings. It's, I like to think of them as <clears throat> kind of like the pineapple chunks in the jello at the church potluck, although that doesn't work with younger people because we don't have church potlucks anymore. So if you prefer, they're the almonds in the chocolate bar that is, that is Matthew. They're these kind of separate things that are tasty and good, right? And all of this, Sermon on the Mount and all these other teachings, are really the unpacking of what we saw last week in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus' preaching is summed up as, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, repent, as Pastor Kevin uh, said, means to sort of reorient our whole lives. It's not just feel bad about stuff or stop doing bad things. It, It includes the, the call to stop living in certain ways, but repent is an invitation to rethink your whole life, to reorient your life. And what Jesus is saying here is repent, turn away from whatever way you think about your life because God's kingdom is coming from heaven upon the earth. And so the rest of Matthew is going to be really an unpacking of what that repent for the kingdom of heaven looks like, including here this first big chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. Because repenting or being a Christian means opening yourself up to being reshaped and reformed by how God sees the world, with Jesus as the teacher who is showing us what God's ways are like. And you can understand, I hope, that that is promising life, and we'll come back to that. Second introductory point, more briefly about the sermon, is that the Sermon on the Mount, this Matthew 5 to 7 we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks, has really a unifying theme. And I would sum it up this way, that true life is found only by becoming whole people through Christ. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not just a sort of random set of of teachings that somebody threw together or something or something like that. Instead, it's, it's intentionally put together for us, and there's a theme that ties it together, and we'll see this more in coming weeks, but that our interior person and our exterior person need to match up, right? That, and that's the only way we'll find life. And the third introductory statement I want to say about the sermon is that the Sermon on the Mount is presenting Jesus as the true wisdom or sage, a wise teacher of the world. It's presenting him as the true wisdom of the world. Now, that's based in, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago, at Jesus' baptism we saw in Matthew chapter 3, 
The heavens were opened, and God declares Jesus is his fully beloved, fully pleasing son. And based on that authority, then Jesus is being presented in the sermon as teaching what God's wisdom is. Now, it's not the only thing that's true about Jesus. He's also Savior and King and Prophet and Lord. But he's also this. He is a teacher of true wisdom. Okay, so that's just introduction to understand what we're going to be seeing the next several weeks and what we're about to talk about now, what we heard read, the Beatitudes. And this is where the sermon starts. Now, I'm a teacher at heart, and I imagined, we didn't really do this, but I imagined putting a little test, a little quiz, one, one question quiz under each of your chairs and have everybody fill it out, and it'd be a fill in the blank, which would be um, a Beatitude is... Right? I think many of us here have probably heard that word beatitude, but I think most of us would struggle a fair amount to define what exactly a beatitude is. That's not even a really clear uh, word to us, probably. And you're not alone in this. I've spent the last five or six years of my life trying to figure out what this word means. So you're, you're in good company, right? If you're not entirely sure what, uh, what beatitude is. So what is it? Well, I, let me point out a few things that a beatitude is not. A beatitude is not a be attitude. Like, that'd be a common mistake to make. Like, it's some attitude to have or something. You can understand some people, oops, that's not at all what it means. Uh, a beatitude is not a blessing that if you, you know, that, that God gives to people. It's not just a, it's not the same thing as a blessing. And it's also not a promise that if we do something, then God will do something for us. None of those are maybe what we, none of those are what a beatitude is, even though we might think that. Rather, what a beatitude is, and I'm going to do something that I generally do not recommend my students do, but I have no choice here. I'm a victim. I'm going to give you a couple words from other languages because I, the simple point is we do not have in English a word that describes this, how these words function. The Latin word where we get our word beatitude is from beatus, and the Greek word version of it is makarios or makar. And both of these words mean happiness or flourishing, particularly when you're looking at a situation and saying, wow, that is actually really awesome, or that is true happiness, or that is true flourishing. We don't have a, a, a really clear word in English that functions the way these words do. A lot of languages do. And so I'll show you one more picture. Um, this is of my beloved RX-8, and you can see I've got the license plate, Makar, on there, which was a great idea originally, um, but you can't have eight letters on a Kentucky license plate, so I wanted to say Makarios, because this, this car gives me a lot of joy and human flourishing, right? It's a little, little bit of human flourishing, but the problem is I, can only, I couldn't put eight, so I had to do the shorter ancient Homeric form of it, but now, as my wife likes to make fun of me, it looks like I'm like a grandma who can't spell or something. <laughs> So they're, they're, that's what I get for trying to have a cool license plate. I end up having Makar on it. But now you know that I mean by it the ancient Homeric word for human flourishing. So there, there you go. But I don't want to overly complicate this because I'm, I'm not trying to overwhelm you with a bunch of other languages, Latin or Greek or Hebrew words we look at too, because the point is actually very straightforward. Jesus, like other sages in the world, is describing for us what true happiness or, or what true life or human flourishing or peace or shalom really looks like. And as I said earlier, every religion, every philosophy, every marketing campaign, every inspirational quotes book, everything and everyone is offering wisdom that also promises life. 
a vision for how to see and be in the world that will touch in and tap into us and guide us for what we all long for. Let me give you some examples. These are from like inspirational quote kind of books, things. So live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. That's from Gandhi. Or Emerson, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there's no path and leave a trail. Or Martin Luther King, only in the darkness can you see the stars. Or here's a couple other good ones. A diamond is merely a lump of coal that did well under pressure. I like that one. Like all these. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. That's a good Mark Twainism. Or channel little Charles, Charles Schultz of Peanuts fame. Do not, don't worry about the, coming, the world coming to an end today. It's already tomorrow in Australia. Now, the point of these, whether they're serious or funny... Those are macarisms. Those are beatitudes. Those are what Jesus is giving here as well. These are statements that if you really think about them, they're inviting you to see the world in a certain way, maybe a little differently than you've thought of it, whether it's funny or serious, and then learn to live in that way because the implicit promise is that that invitation will help you do better in life, right? Well, this is, it's true for us today. We just don't really have a word for that. We call them inspirational quotes or something. But in the ancient world, these were called beatitudes or macrisms. They are statements that are an invitation to learn to see and be in the world in a certain way. So here's the question. What are Jesus's beatitudes? What, what is he, as the true wisdom of God, saying is the place of flourishing? Well, let's just, let's hear them again. I'll start back in verse 1 again. When he saw the crowds, Jesus saw the crowds, he ascended the mountain, he went and sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So he's in the posture of this authoritative teacher. He's sitting on a mountain, everyone is standing, uh, listening to him, and he opens his mouth, the first sermon of the New Testament. All right, here we go. The The first words, first message of the New Testament, here it is. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing of the mourners, because they will be comforted. Flourishing of the humble, because they will inherit the world. Flourishing of the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Flourishing of the merciful, because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart, because they will see God. Flourishing of the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. And flourishing of the ones persecuted on account of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you, whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice. Be glad, because your reward is great in heaven, in the same way people slander the prophets who came before you. So notice, the first thing you probably notice is that's not your typical translation. Right? There's a translation... I'm providing for you because I think it gets at much more clearly. It's not perfect. I believe me, I, I literally spent 10 years trying to figure out how to translate this word, and I'm, I'm not entirely satisfied with flourishing as the answer. But it is, it's getting closer at what I think macrisms or beatitudes do. They are painting a picture of what Jesus says the life of fullness looks like. I think it's better than what we usually have in our translations, and our translations are very good. I'm not dissing any of our translations, but a lot of times we usually translate this with the word blessed. Don't we? Each of those beatitudes begin with blessed. And the, the reason I, don't, I think that could be a little confusing is because I think on our, on our ear, it sounds like blessed are the poor in spirit. It sounds like if you do this, then God will bless you, right? I think that's almost impossible to avoid in English, that it kind of sounds like that. And so what I'm trying to encourage you to see is that 
These are not statements that if you do this thing, God will bless you. That's not how these work. These are a, a vision, a picture of what Jesus is saying is the true state of happiness, or you might say blessedness, but the true state of flourishing is. Now, we could easily, there are nine macrisms, nine beatitudes. We could easily take nine weeks to go through each of these macrisms, and that's what preachers typically do, and that would be a valuable thing. It's a great thing to do. Each of these beatitudes are worth uh, you know, a week or a lifetime of study. But we as the preaching leaders here at Sojourn, and this is mostly my fault, actually. I'll take the blame on this. We didn't want to spend six months or a year just in the Sermon on the Mount, as good as that would be, um, because we wanted to experience the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. So we knew if we slowed way down in the sermon, half of you would be dead and half of you moved away by that point. We didn't want to spend 15 years going through Matthew because there's something you only get when you look at it in, in sort of a larger picture. We didn't want to get too bogged down, even though there's so much beauty in every twig. We wanted to see the forest of Matthew. So, so we're going to spend 10 weeks in the sermon, which is still great. I think that's right. I think I calculated that correctly. It's, st- it's still great, but it, we can't spend nine of those on the Beatitudes then. So I made the decision with the other pastoral leaders to, um, we're going to spend the Beat- we're going to do one on the Beatitudes, and that's what we're doing. And, you know, the more I reflected on it, I realized there's something you get from looking at all the Beatitudes together that you don't get if you just look at them individually, and that's what I want to offer you today. And let me just ask you that question. When you hear all those Beatitudes together, all those macrosms together, Jesus' picture of what flourishing looks like, what do you observe? I'm just curious. What do you observe when you take them all together, not just individually? Well, here's my answer. The door into happiness is very low and cross-shaped. The door into happiness, what Jesus is talking about, is a very low door, and it's cross-shaped. You see, our tendency and our expectation is when we think of statements of happiness or flourishing, and I could, you know, you go to Hobby Lobby and see a million of these, like, nice wood plaque things, you know, believe in yourself, you can do it, you go girl, or something. Hobby Lobby probably doesn't have you go girl, but something like that, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of fun, fun ones, or Meyer maybe, or something you might see others. That's what we expect. We expect them to be kind of positive, uplifting, inspirational quotes. But did you notice, do you notice, that when you look through all these Beatitudes together, what really unites them is that they're actually all very negative and dark. There's a, there's a dark tone to all of them together. Let me just think with them, with you about them here for a second. Poor in spirit. You may be so used to hearing that, that sounds positive, but notice the metaphor he uses, not rich in spirit, but poverty, need, and lack, that in your inner person there is a, there's a desperation and a need, a, a poverty. Mourning, grief and sadness, aware of brokenness in the world and in yourself as well. Based in Isaiah, this is particularly the idea of, in fact, all these Beatitudes are based, especially in the book of Isaiah, things the prophet said there, brokenness over the loss and suffering in the world. Humble. Again, you, may, my, you, you, and, I, my, you and I may think that that's like a really positive thing, humble, but humble means you don't need or often get the honor that you want or even deserve. It means, being humble means you put others in front of yourself, and others get the glory and the recognition. Hungering and thirsting. Think about that. Again, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that may sound to us really positive, but again, notice the language. It's not positive. 
hungering and thirsting, being in hunger and thirst for righteousness means, again, this is all based in the book of Isaiah, that it's longing for God to come and set the world to right, to, to righteousize things. It's, it's seeing the, the brokenness of the world of sex trafficking and murder and disease and war and broken relationships and, and, and feeling the hunger and thirst. God, come and set these things to right. That's not a positive place to be in. That's feeling the burdens of this world. Merciful. Being merciful means that you f- actually forgive, you give up your justice to forgive someone else. It means that you show compassion on people who have gotten themselves into a mess. Do you remember when I preached several weeks ago about Mary and Joseph and Joseph's response to Mary? Apparently she's gotten herself into a mess and he shows mercy on her. Peacemaking, this means, again, it may sound positive to you, but peacemaking means giving up your right to be right and valuing peace over justice. This means that, you know, in a conversation or a text, you don't have to just say one more time, I know, but just make sure you understand my point, right? I, I did that this week, like in a back and forth with a friend, you know, just making sure that finally I got the final word that it was that, rather than saying, you know what, making peace is far more important that I get the final word. And if you didn't pick up on the negative tone yet, Look again at your bulletin, the climactic numbers eight and nine, where it gets doubly emphasized. Flourishing are those who are persecuted, reviled, slandered, misrepresented. I don't know of anything in my life that sucks more than that, right? The feeling of being misrepresented and maligned. Really the only one of Jesus' macroisms about human flourishing that are in any way positive is verse eight, probably, Flourishing are the pure in heart, and I I don't have time to get into all what this means, but I'll just say that I think this is probably at the core of the whole Sermon on the Mount, this idea of being whole in their heart, and look at the thing that comes with it, they'll see God, and that's all I have to say. But clearly, the overall tone is very dark. And so let me sum up again what I think all the Beatitudes together are saying, that Jesus is saying the door into happiness, the door into true life is actually very low. I mean, you have to crawl to get into it in that sense in your heart, and it's cross-shaped. You see, Jesus is inviting you and me to adopt his wisdom that true life is available. It's really available, but the way of living that looks like true life and happiness is not what feels natural and doesn't, isn't what comes naturally to us. It's not what we would expect, this sort of upward and onward, everything always getting happy and awesome. If I could just get that promotion or have enough money in the bank or finally find a spouse or finish school or just have a great set of friends or get some fame and recognition or have children, then I'll be happy. All those things are good, right? But Jesus is saying, do you want to know what real human flourishing is? It's actually never going to be found in, in all those things. Even the people that have all those things don't know true happiness. The way is his way, what he himself models of forgiving others, being humble, being a peacemaker, being merciful, experiencing the longing for God to set the world to right, enduring malignment and misrepresentation for the sake of Christ. These are Jesus' vision for what true life can look like. But again, it all feels so foreign to us and everything in us wants to scream the opposite. When we are wronged and misrepresented and misunderstood and done injustice, we want to retaliate. We want to defend. We want to justify ourselves. We want to attack. 
But Jesus is saying these ways may feel natural in our, in our humanness and our sinfulness, but you will never find life there. There is no life there. They are not what God's ways look like. They are not what Jesus himself models in his own way of being. And this, you see, this unexpected dark tone in Jesus' Beatitudes is crucial to recognize because then it makes sense of how the first part of each Beatitude relates to the second part. Have you ever asked yourself that question? I don't think people usually ask them. We kind of see the first part, and then we're not sure what to do with the second part of each beatitude. But look back with them again. You see, the point is, Jesus says this crazy stuff that happiness or flourishing looks like all these negative things. And then the second part of the beatitude explains why what he's saying is not just crazy talk. Look at them again. Flourishing of the poor in spirit, how could that be? Because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are mourners? What? Because they'll be comforted. Flourishing are the humble? How could, how was humble a place, a good place to be? Because those people will inherit the world. Flourishing are the ones hungry and thirsting for righteousness? Because those are the ones that are going to be satisfied. Flourishing are the merciful? Because they will be given mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart? because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, because they'll be called the children of God. And flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness, because, again, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then to push that last point even further, flourishing are you whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven in this same way people slander the prophets who came before you. Do you want to be part of God's kingdom? Do you want to find comfort? Do you want to inherit the world? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to be given mercy? Do you want to see God? Do you want to be called the children of God? Do you want, do you want to have great reward in heaven? Of course you do. Of course I do. And the reason Jesus' ways are trustworthy is because the promises he gives, the one who is anointed by God as the truest wisdom of the world, the promises he give, gives are amazing. They are beyond our wildest dreams that this is the people we could be as we follow in his way. And you see, this gets back to that question of self-denial that I brought up earlier. Notice that Jesus does not appeal to us to follow him and become his disciples, to adopt his way of seeing and being out of sheer duty. Do this, darn it. I'm God's son. You'd better do what I say. I'm God and you suck. You better deny yourself. No. Just the opposite. Do you see that every one of these appeals is inviting us into the life that we long for? These are the things we long for, and he's saying he's motivating us by appealing to our God-given desire for true life, for true happiness or flourishing that lasts. As I've often said to you guys when I preach, I'll say it again, it's beauty that motivates us, not duty. Duty will never sustain and resource this kind of life. It's only seeing a picture of the beauty of what God promises. And you see again, there's nothing wrong. My point is there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. God made us for joy and peace. Remember what Jesus says in John 10.10? 10? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
This is how we're made. And Jesus and God are not afraid of that question. So whether it's the good insights on vulnerability from Brene Brown or the Cleveland Browns or Charlie Brown or a hot Brown, whatever it is, they're all promising some kind of happiness and flourishing. And that is okay because that's what we're made for. God's not afraid of that universal human question, but the answer he gives is unlike anyone else's. And to be his disciple means you take his yoke upon you and follow and learn from him. And of course, there's a place for self-denial. Absolutely, there's for cross-bearing. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. But here's what you need to understand. That the goal of self-denial and sacrifice is never itself, but it's for some greater joy. The reason the young cellist practices hours every day is so that he or she can someday play well. The reason we love others in self-sacrificial ways it's okay. It's because that actually brings you the most joy ultimately. It's not just out of duty. And if you think I'm making this up, what does the Bible say was Jesus's ultimate motivation? Do you remember? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and all its shame. God is not afraid to motivate us by our greatest good. The problem is that we constantly misunderstand what the true good is. And this is why Jesus teaches this wisdom. And so too here, friends, this is what the Beatitudes are. They are Jesus, the life-giving wisdom of the world, offering us what it means to truly live. And the door into true happiness is very low and cross-shaped. And so now we can return back to the profound question my beloved Indian friend asked me a couple of weeks ago, how do, you, how do you be happy as a Christian? And my answer was Jesus' answer. It was a little shorter version of this, but it was, uh, I didn't stand up and give him a you know, 35-minute lecture or something, but it was as unexpected to him as it is to you and me, that the door to happiness is very low and cross-shaped. And it's very different than Hinduism's answer and very different than Buddhism's answer, Right? but it's still answering the same question. And God has given us these beatitudes, not because they're going to magically solve all the problems in our lives if we do these things. We're not going to earn God's favor by doing these things. That's not the point at all. This is the vision of what it means to follow after the true wisdom of the world, Jesus. And as I wrap up today, I need to say two very important things that will tie all this together as we move forward in Matthew. So two very, very important things. I appreciate if you listen very carefully to these two statements to sum this up. First, you can't really know the truth of what Jesus is saying until you start to follow. Okay, so Jesus is presenting this wisdom. He's saying, here's the way of being that promises true flourishing. You can't really know that until you start to follow. And here's what I mean. If you, if you observe, you know this. When, as soon as I say this, you're going to know this is true. Most of the deep things in, lives, in our lives are not just in our heads, but come through our bodies, through our experience. So that is knowledge itself. So whether it's, example I've used before, driving a manual transmission, whether it's riding a horse, writing a book, running a company, roofing a house, putting in an IV, whatever it is, You can study and you can learn and you can kind of understand, but you don't really know until you do it, right? It's because we're not just 
vats or brains in a vat on a stick. We are embodied knowers, and we only come to truly know things through the experience of it. And so too with following Jesus. You can't just read about, well, you can. You could just read and listen to a sermon, etc., and decide, oh, that makes sense. That's great. But you will never know the life he's talking about until you start to follow. So I just say, come and see. Come taste and see the goodness of God in Jesus' ways. Step into the stream of Jesus' wisdom and see what happens. So this week, being merciful and peacemakers, maybe step towards reconciliation and some relationships that you're aware of are strained. See what happens. Take the humble road and, and be merciful and peacemaking. For humility and poverty of spirit, look for opportunities to respond in humility, the, the humble way of relating to each other this week. Extroverts, that might mean you need to talk a little less. Introverts, you might mean not resent the extroverts talking too much, right? That's me. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That is embracing that the burdens of the world and its brokenness as part of the way of Jesus in the world. Maybe that means stepping, or does mean stepping towards some involvement in that kind of restorative work in the world. Maybe it's a, the pregnancy center or a medical clinic or helping the elderly or the Masonic home for the people with dementia or Scarlet's Bakery or Free to Hope. Whatever it is, find life by stepping into these ways that Jesus is inviting us, and then you will know. Then you will know his wisdom. So that's the first thing I just want to say that you've, you've, we've got to We've got to be disciples to understand. And secondly, Jesus' invitation into true life is true, but it's not the whole story of Matthew either. And this is looking forward to the, our, our coming months, is that all of what I've said here about Jesus inviting us into true life, I think is, obviously I think it's true, um, but it's also not the whole story of Matthew. Jesus is the sage and he's a teacher of wisdom, but We've already seen in Matthew, and we'll see more in Matthew, that he's more than that, too. He's, he's the Lord, he's the King, he's the prophet, he's the Savior. He's inviting you and me into discipleship. He's a wise te teacher, but he's not just a wise teacher. He is the true Son of God who has come to break open the world and rescue us, save us from our sins, and then pour out the Spirit so that we might be transformed. In other words, if all we had were the Beatitudes, and Jesus just stands up there and gives us wisdom, some of us would be pretty good at doing it, most of us would be kind of in the middle, and some people would fail completely. Right? But that's not the whole message. The whole message is he is inviting us into true human flourishing and the one who invites us is going to go on to die, to give his life, to make a new covenant between God and humanity to bring peace and then to pour out the Holy Spirit on us so that we can actually begin to be transformed. And that's good news. And because of that bigger framing of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we love every week to do to do this, to end each message, not just by inviting us to, to follow, which is also good and true, but reminding us that that happens because on the night the Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body and I'm giving this and this is my blood. I'm giving this to make a new covenant so that we can be in a relationship 
so that you can begin to follow me with an increasingly transformed heart. And so if you're a Christian today, what this is, this is an opportunity to again listen to Matthew 4, 17, listen to Matthew 5, 1 to 12, repent because God's kingdom is returning to the earth and use this time as you come forward in faith to confess your sins, to do some heart work and to begin to say, just Lord, come and make these things true of me. Fill me with your spirits that I might increasingly follow in your ways. And if you're not a Christian today, we are so glad you're here. Um, this is not some magical thing that'll do anything for you. This is a, an act of faith. So just, it's no problem to stay in your seats. It's, it's no problem at all. We're very glad you're here, but we would love to talk to you and help you understand what it means to begin to follow. And we're going to have this great opportunity to see a stage of this as well with baptism here. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. The musicians are going to come forward. Then as you desire and as you're able, come forward and make this a re-proclamation, you Christians, for your faith and your desire to be transformed into Christ's beautiful image. So come, come and see. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.